Well, it is Mother's Day. That's Mother's Day. Um, this is one of those times of year where it's uh, Scripture says we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And sometimes you have to do that the same thing. And that seems to happen more at this time of year. And on this day, so we had a, uh, a burial service for Rick Barons on Friday. Uh, and I think the Lord was honored. I think Rick was honored. Uh, we had lots of people graduating high school, college, grad school. Uh, we have people who are extremely lonely. Uh, we have people who are suffering. We have Mother's Day. It's a great day for some and it's a hard day for others. We're going to talk about that a little more. But this time of year, where we really sort of learn the meaning of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And you don't get to pick the times. We don't get to pick when that happens. It just happens. And so that's the way we respond uh, biblically. And so let's keep that in mind as we go through uh, this week. Um, so it's a little different. I, I know I have told people that I don't do topical sermons. So, in the spirit of having to eat your words, um, today I'm going to do a topical sermon. Otherwise, it was Exodus 23 and, like, don't boil a goat in your mother's milk, which was probably not quite for Mother's Day. So, with great wisdom, I decided to do a topical sermon for Mother's Day. Um, trying to avoid all the awkwardness. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. We need it. We need to hear it from you. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. One of the things that makes God great is he loves us even more than our mothers. We know this is a hard day for many. Some people here have mother-child stories that are more painful than others. Some have suffered through the loss of miscarriage, the loss of infertility, some are just reminded of some other painful situation. So help us on this day to honor and affirm the calling of motherhood, while also acknowledging the pain and sorrow of other people's stories. But most of all, regardless of what this day holds for us, help us to put Jesus first. And so we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Well, how many of you remember the famous book by Bruce Fursine called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche? Raise your hands. You've heard this book, especially if you're older. Well, Joyce Justin wasn't about to put up with that. So she wrote the feminist answer, Real Women Don't Pump Gas. Let me be very quick to say that I don't actually recommend that you buy either of these books. <laughs> There's very little in them to commend. But they have their moments. Now, Ms. Joseph begins her book by saying that Bruce Bernstein is essentially correct when he says, real men don't engage. He says a man cannot possibly appreciate the subtle blend of cream, eggs, herbs, and spices which represent the epitome of refined civilization. Real women, however, are secure enough 
to cook, serve, and eat whatever they very well please. Bruce knew all his women and favorites, stick to fixing transmissions. She goes on to say, things have gotten out of control. I don't know what that says, I can't. That's not what I'm doing. I do like teach. <laughs> <laughs> Two strengths. Um, she says, we've heard a lot about real men's clothes, real men's reading, real men's dining choices, which parenthetically she says, if you consider the manner in which real men eat, you probably shouldn't use the word dining, <laughs> since it resembles a feeding at the zoo. <laughs> the problem, she says, in the midst of all this spreading about inventing the chainsaw and municipal bonds, everyone has overlooked one important fact. Who do you think brought all these real men into the world in the first place? Who carried them for nine months? Who cooked their first hamburgers? Who taught them how to open a bottle of ketchup? Real women, of course. Going one step further, she reminds us, even the Pope had a mother. Everyone had a mother, other than Adam, no exceptions. Even for real men. That's so true. Ever watch one of those football games? They introduce the players beforehand, and they come out and say what school they went to. And you get this giant person. This huge guy comes out, playing right defensive end, six feet eight inches tall, weighing in at 345 pounds, is Ed Killer Jones. <laughs> this year, Killer had 200 unassisted tackles. He broke the spines of seven of his quarterbacks. And we think he ate two running backs. <laughs> so Killer Jones, this huge, fearsome football player, runs up to the camera, waves, and says, Hi, Mom. <laughs> right? Every time. Mothers have a special place in the lives of so many people. They always have. So much so that God, in trying to describe how much he loves his children, uses the special love of mothers as an analogy to help us understand how great his love is for us. And that comes about for a whole variety of reasons. But one of them is he has to deal with a great accusation. That's the first blank there in your outline. A great accusation. Look at me at Isaiah 49, 14, the participation today. I need a battery here. Battery's fine. Battery's good, okay. Isaiah 49, uh, 14, and I know in your outline it says 14 and 15, it's just 14. Sorry. There's a prophet Isaiah says something quite forceful, and let's read it together. We'll do this in unison. Isaiah 49, verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Zion is referring to Israel, all the people of Israel. And that's quite an accusation to make against the Holy God. They're saying that God has abandoned them. He has forgotten about them. He has deserted them. And ultimately, they're claiming that God has been unfaithful and that he is unconcerned about their needs. And before anybody gasps in disbelief or wonder, before we get too down on the Israelites, we need to step back and take a look at ourselves. Because I think if the spotlight were turned on each one of us, 
And we had the opportunity or the obligation to be totally honest with everyone else here this morning. You would probably have to admit that there has been at least one, but probably several times in your life, when you have accused God of abandoning you. You may not have said it out loud, but I'm guessing most everybody here has wondered or thought that. Where's God? Maybe it was surrounding the death of a loved one. Maybe it was around that time you lost your job. Uh, maybe it was because of an accident or a painful uh, divorce or a serious illness or it was that class. Who remember that one? But you can remember it if I nudged you a little bit. And you prayed and you pleaded and perhaps you even bargained with God. And yet God seems strangely silent. He seemed rather uninterested in your situation. And you begin to feel that he doesn't, doesn't care about you. He certainly didn't care about your dilemma. And he was distant and cold. And you were swept into self-pity and despair. And you cry out in a questioning voice, God, where are you? Why don't you answer me? Why have you forgotten about me? Maybe you can recall having thought that. Maybe you can remember having said that. Because that's exactly what Israel did. And how does God respond to this great accusation? Well, God answers them and us with a great response. A great response. He doesn't take their accusation lightly. He plans a response to what is, uh, at face value, an absurd accusation. God wants to say just the right thing to put their ridiculous thought to rest. And being God, he can look at a whole uh, panorama of ways to combat this very human misunderstanding. God chose just the right illustration. One that he felt that everyone would be able to easily identify with and understand. An illustration he felt would settle the issue. And so in the very next verse, Isaiah 49 and 15, he says something significant. So let's read God's response together again in unison, Isaiah. 49 and 13. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God shows as his perfect illustration of his great love for his children an illustration of the special love of love. It's as though God is saying, Are you kidding me? Can you imagine a mother giving birth to a child and then taking off? Can you imagine a nursing mother refusing to feed her child and letting her starve to death? Most of you can't imagine that. Desertion and abandonment defies the basic nature of a mother. It contradicts who she is. You see what God's doing here? He's referring to the special love of a mother. And you've got to think about a mother for a minute because God has a lesson for us here about his love. But first you have to understand her love, a mother's love. And I don't know about you, but I find myself often becoming callous about the constant reports of violent crime that seem to be in the news virtually every day. All the murderies, robberies, rapes, beating, rage, and nonsensical pain that we here in America seem to inflict on each other. And sometimes you just tune it out. You've grown callous because there's so much of it. And you do it without even thinking about it. And it's not that I don't care. It just seems so overwhelming sometimes. 
And you're thinking, you know, I just don't have the emotional energy it takes to, to deal with it, to be involved with any of these scenarios. But I can tell you, my head always turns. And it gives me a knot in my gut whenever I hear another report of a mother who leaves her baby in a shopping bag in a restaurant. That I can't relate to at all. That stirs up emotions you can't put on. It leaves us mystified and confused. How could something like that happen? And we hear about it three or four times a year. It always makes the papers and the nightly news because it just is so hard for us to wrap our brains around. And you see it. Woman leaves baby in an alley. Woman leaves baby on a doorstep. Baby found in dumpster. Teenager abandons newborn at the prom. It happens. And it's always news. Because it's so contrary to human nature. It's so contrary to our understanding of what a mother is. So when it does happen, it arrests all of us. It just stops us cold. We never understand it. And God has answered the absurd accusation of Israel by saying, in effect, you tell me, what are the odds of a good mother abandoning her nursing child? What are the odds? Come on, you people understand the love of a mother. You understand the devotion a mother has for her child. Where do you think mothers got that fierce loyalty that they have for their children? They got it because I put it there. Because they're created in the image of God. And God is telling the Israelites that a mother's love, caring and as devoted as it is, is still merely a shadow of the kind of love that God has for his children. And if it's highly unlikely for a sinful mother to deserve her child, it's absolutely absurd for a perfect heavenly parent to deserve his children. And so God appeals to a mother's love as an illustration of his own faithfulness, his own unquestioned loyalty to his children, those who know him through Jesus Christ. And it's a great reminder. And that would be the next blank there. It's a great reminder. Now, just as an aside, I think some of you here this morning need to be here. This morning, some of you walked in and you had your Sunday smiles on. But on the inside, you were wounded and you hurt. And I think it's safe to assume that most of the people here have their own scars to show. Some of the scars are on the outside and some of the scars are on the inside. And for some of you, this is going to be a hard day. Because this is the first Mother's Day for your family without mom. That's painful stuff. That makes for a hard Mother's Day. That's true for a number of families here today. And we need to pray for those families. There's a lot of people today trying to deal with hard stuff. Because emotional pain is most remembered on special days. And some of you are there. And you're trying to put your best uh, not to uh, let on publicly what's going on privately. But the truth of the matter is, deep inside, maybe just a little bit, you're slowly losing faith in God. Some of you may be convinced that God has deserted you, and you need to be here today. Because you need to be reminded of this truth, that God has not and will not desert you Ever. If you know God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
then he has not forsaken you. Granted, from time to time, he's silent. And sometimes that bothers me just as much as I know it bothers you. And granted, God's word says in Isaiah 55, our part of our response of reading uh, this morning, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Which means sometimes we can't figure him out. We don't understand what he's doing. And sometimes he says no to our prayers and to our pleadings. Quote one of our own member, Jen White, who recently blogged about some of her own struggles. I have her permission to quote her today. She writes, I recently started wearing a necklace that says, and if not, he is still good, based on Daniel 3. Simple reminder to me that God is merciful and just and has the best plan. Simply put it, God does not grant Caleb and I's desire, and he is still good. Our job is to obey and trust him. I wear it because I struggle with this truth on a daily basis, sometimes hourly. I can't tell you how many times I cried out, asking God to fulfill my longing. I don't know if he will. Pray me to fill it in a way I cannot yet understand. In Persuasion, a novel by Jane Austen, one of the main characters, Wentworth, sums this up in a letter he writes by saying, I am half agony, half hope. In the below, below article, you've got to go to a blog or Facebook page to get the link. The author goes on to say, and I love this quote, God is glorified by relieving our suffering. God is also glorified by not relieving our suffering. In either case, God is always seeking to bestow his greatest blessing upon you, himself. And with that in mind, let me remind you, don't ever accuse God of deserting you. He just doesn't do that. It would go against everything he has told us about himself in his word. It would go against his character. He gives you his greatest blessing, the gift of himself. And if a mother abandoning her child is contrary to human nature, how much more so for God? Because for God to abandon his children would be contrary to divine nature. And that's it never. Be reminded, be encouraged this morning to keep trusting God even when he appears to be silent. Keep surrendering to him even when his ways are confusing to you. Claim the promise that we have from him in Psalm 145. It's listed there in your outline, Psalm 145, 17. Again, let's read this together. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his words. That's a great truth. And you have to keep reminding yourself of that great truth. God loves you as much as he possibly can right now. And there's nothing you can do to get God to love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you any less than he already does right now. No matter what situation you are facing, God loves you, period, no conditions. And it is absurd for a good mother to abandon her child. How absurd to think that the one who loves you the most and knows you the best Whatever leave you, he won't. He promises, no matter what. Let's go on to another step, which is found in a great reality. A great reality. I think it will help us all to understand how much God loves us if we look even deeper into this idea of the great love that a mother has for her children. 
I don't want to turn this into a group of class. I had sat through a group of class. I did not accept. <laughs> but I want us to think what happens in the life of a woman expecting a child. From the moment of conception on, the moment she realizes she's pregnant, a woman is never the same. No matter what happens with that pregnancy, she is forever changed. Even the knowledge of her pregnancy sets off a chain of reactions that affect her to the core of her being. Initially, there are all those mixed-up emotions. This is great, this is not great. There's joy, there's fear, there's doubt, there's determination. I've watched this a whole bunch of times. I know the deal. There's loneliness, there's anticipation. Up and down she goes, where she stops, nobody knows. And complicating the emotional changes, soon the hormones begin to do their thing. And this delicate chemical balance in the body of an expected mother is altered in ways you could never have previously imagined, which may result in morning sickness, afternoon sickness, evening sickness, midnight sickness. Not everything about expecting is fun. A number of years ago, I asked Ray to do a little calculating for me. Thought it might be of interest to some of you uh, who are thinking about uh, being a mom someday. My wife was pregnant nine months with David. Then two months, and we suffered through a miscarriage. Then nine months with Rebecca, nine months with Sarah, three months with another child we lost to a miscarriage. Then nine months with Daniel, and finally nine months with Samuel. That's a total of 50 months. That's a little over four years nauseated and tired. <laughs> I'm sure I'll motivate some of you to go right out and talk to your doctor. <laughs> Suppose you should write talk to might have some ideas. But it's not this way in every case, to be sure. But if you don't understand what a mother's love is all about, you have to understand what they go through. Along with the tiredness and the sickness, there are food cravings and eating binges, grapes and popsicles, which are favorites at our house. Some of those binges are caused by the pregnancy, and some of those binges are excused by the pregnancy. <laughs> And then there's that crash of self-esteem when the belly bulges and clothes don't fit and the expectant mother says goodbye to her pal who clients and begins to dislike any other woman who is wearing them. <laughs> and the weight gain and the restricted diet and the clumsiness of the center of gravity changes. And everything seems to be getting more complicated. And the expectant mother begins wondering if this was a smart thing to do until one day, without any notice, the expectant mother gets a good kick in the ribs from the inside. It's one of the most powerful moments in the life of a woman, those first feelings of life. Men, we check out here. There is no parallel for us. Not gas, not heartburn, not dead, China, nothing. Not even the morning after the night before at Mom Margarita's. Nothing. And something happens to a woman when she begins to feel life in her womb. She begins to come to grips with the fact that a miracle, and there's no other way to describe it, that a miracle is taking place inside her mind. She keeps telling her husband to feel her tummy and try to feel the one kicking. First time I put my hand on Joanne's belly and felt the cake was really cool. It was like, well, there really is something in there. Um, and I drew a little foot and red match marker on her belly to mark the occasion. One of those permanent. <laughs> the day before, no, <laughs> so the little 
someone's doing somersaults and backflips and hat gainers and long wishes and kid would settle down, almost. Because every nudge is a reminder of what's going on. And that mother and little child have something going on before the child's even born. Bond is already there. You have to understand that if you're going to understand how the special love of a mother reflects the love of God. And then there's labor. Nothing more accurately named. And any man who's ever been in a labor room will tell you they're amazed at the trauma and agony that the mother does through in labor. The average labor is from 2 to 12 hours, which means there really is no average. And there's no dull moments. Then there's the delivery. I was totally awed. Actually, the delivery of a child is one of the most incredible things you can ever witness. And think about it. I've done a lot of stuff. I mean, I've repelled out of helicopters. I've flown in choppers with no doors at 90 knots, four feet above the trees. I've crawled under a live overhead machine gun fire at night. I've climbed to the top of a telephone pole, grabbed onto a dinky little pulley attached to a skinny little wire, appropriately named as life for life, and ridden 200 feet down into a lake. I've done a lot of crazy things, but I don't think anything compares to the incredible drama of witnessing the birth of a baby. <laughs> and then there's the first time the new mother holds the baby, take a mental picture of that mother holding her baby for the first time. It's radiant. The love for that child knows no bounds. When the mother begins to nurse that child, the bond is cemented as the mother realizes this tiny person is totally dependent on her. Now, with five children and eight grandchildren, we've ranged from about eight and a half to one and a half pounds. So we've seen lots of babies. And watch this, the nurse wraps up that child. And at some point she says, are you ready to hold her, Dad? And after you realize this dad guy she's talking about is you, <laughs> you reach out your arms and hold this precious little baby. I don't remember what much from when David was born, it was a few years ago, like 32 and a half. Um, I think I was in shock. But I do remember when they put Rebecca in my arms. And two things immediately came to mind. The first thought I had when they put Rebecca in my arms was someday I'm going to have to give her away. And six years ago last week, I did just that. Next, I realized, I think for the first time, the real truth of 1 John 3 1. It's there in your outline. I'm going to read this one together, too. Really powerful. Let's read this in unison. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's how God can love us unconditionally. Before they've done anything to deserve it. You know, Rebecca hadn't done anything yet when she was born, but love just flowed from Joanne and I, and it happened like that for all our kids. And I might add, women who can't bear children, who for whatever reason can't go through the experience I described, that they should choose to adopt. They can experience this overwhelming love of a mother for a child just as much, just as meaningfully as any other uh, member. We have a number of adopted children. We have a number of adults who are adopted as children. And sometimes, because of the difficulty experienced, that love goes way beyond the average woman. It's an even greater reflection of the love of God, because he has both created and adopted all of his children. 
So this incredible love is bound up in the heart and soul of a woman. Someone once said, and I don't remember who, but I love the quote, that when a woman has a child, she's choosing to let her heart go walking around outside her body for the rest of her life. And I think you know, most women I know would say, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. That's not always a positive thing either, but it's still true. So how do we explain this overwhelming love of a mother? Well, I don't think there's any way to explain it other than saying it was put there by a loving God who is more devoted and more bonded and more loyal to his children than the best mother in the world. Think about that great reason that mothers most accurately reflect the love of God for his children brings with it great responsibility. Great responsibility, that's the next point. Because I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, that the special love of a mother has a profound effect on children, especially in their early years. I don't want to discount the effect that a father has. But moms are usually involved with their children 24 hours a day for the first few years, 14 to 18 hours a day for a few more years. What an opportunity that mothers have to influence those little lives. Hence the old saying that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Simply means that mothers are in the ideal position to exercise lifelong influence in the lives of their children. What kind of influence do they want to have? Certainly for those mothers who are also followers of Christ, they want to have spiritual influence on their children. I heard Bill Hybels tell at a time when he was the team chaplain for the Chicago Bears football team a number of years ago. And uh, he held a Bible study for the team. And uh, he asked all these pro football players there, who is the most influential person in their coming to Christ? First guy was my mother. Second guy, my mother. Third guy, mom. Fourth guy, my mother died. It was my grandmother. For two-thirds of the guys there, it was their mother or grandmother. Mothers are usually the ones who teach their children their first prayers, read them their first Bible stories, teach them their first songs about Jesus, teach them the real meaning of Christmas and Easter. Think of that opportunity. Mothers get to teach their children about God before anyone else has a chance to mess them up. They get to be the first to write on a clean slate. That's like a pastor's dream. To be able to teach people who haven't been goofed up by somebody else. Not that we're not going to goof you up, but we won't, you know, write the lists. But mothers can teach their children patterns of prayer that will last a lifetime. So let me ask the mothers here. Teaching your kids how to pray. It doesn't matter if they're 3 or 13 or 23. You can still influence your children spiritually. It's never too late to attempt to influence your kids for the cause of Christ. A mother's love is the ideal context in which to pass on spiritual values to children. Moms are doing that. Mother's love is not only the best context for passing on Spiritual values, it's also the ideal context for passing on relational values. It's the mother, for good or bad, who sets the relational tone in the home. And as her love flows out to the family, she attempts to teach children how to love each other, which if you've ever lived in a home with more than one kid, you know is no easy task. 
You know, if you ask uh, uh, family counselors how a mother can best serve her kids or how a father can best serve his kids, relationally over the long haul, nearly all of them will say, by loving her spouse, by loving his spouse. Back when we had kids living at home, you know, every now and then, I'd sort of lose it and grab Joanne in the kitchen in front of all the kids and give her one of those big, loud, long kisses that you want everyone to hear. And I'll just keep going until I hear the kids start to giggle and Joanne start to giggle and then the kids start laughing and then y'all go, Dad. Boys will roll their eyes on And, you know, we'd all be laughing. And the kids, especially when they're younger, even before they have the refined sensibilities of teenagers, go, why? Because it makes them feel secure. It reminded them that mom and dad still love each other and things are okay. It's a good thing to be affectionate in front of your kids. You know where I learned that? My mom and dad. I was one of those fortunate few who never worried if my folks were going to make it. Wives, love your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It's not only good for the two of you, it's good for your children, because children thrive on relational harmony. Even though most of them are not very good at it yet, because it takes a lifetime to learn. And in most homes, it's the mother who sets the relational tone for the family to follow. So you need to do that, folks. And of course, the mother's love provides the ideal context for communicating self-worth to children. Who's better placed than a mother to let children know that they're precious, that they're valued, that they're loved, that they have infinite worth. You know, sometimes parents, like us, not that I'm speaking personally here, but we get so caught up in telling our kids what to do. You know, don't chew with your mouth open, don't slam the door, put the cat back on the toothpaste, pick up your room, you know, put those away, not those, those. And hang that up, throw that out, take out the trash, finish that job. And we forget to tell them that they have potential. They can be anything they want. They have their own special gifts and talents. Don't forget that. You still have to do all that other stuff. <laughs> you know? But don't forget. You know, someone once said that he thought his job was a guy named Howard Hendricks great leadership trainer and talked for years and years at Dallas Theological Seminary. Aaron once he said, at some point I just thought it was my job to fill my kids so much up with love that the world could never empty them out. I thought, you know, this is a real just common sense down to earth guy. I said, that's probably good advice for most of us. Let me wrap this up. I'm always amazed and I think what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. I stand in awe of that event. Something happened there that we often miss on <coughs> Good Friday and Easter. But it's part of the story. When Jesus suffered on the cross, while the whole cosmos groaned, while angels hid their faces, while soldiers spit on him and mocked Jesus, one woman, <coughs> one woman stood near that cross Silently weeping. Certainly she wept because God's son was dying, but she also wept because her son was dying. 
and in the midst of providing redemption for all of God's children, while suffering untold agony, while all the sins of yours and mine were crashing down on his shoulders, Jesus looks down from the cross and sees his mother. It's recorded in John 19. You can go there and read it. And it's sort of as if Jesus looked down and said, you know, Mom's going to need a hand. This is going to be really tough on Mom. This really is. This is wiping her out. And so it's recorded there in John 19 that Jesus looked over at one of his followers named John and said to his mother, Mom, John will take care of you from now on. And to John, he said, John, take care of this woman. She's my mother. I love her. And we read from that moment on, John took Mary into his own household. That moment in time, that specific moment, in my opinion, represents the greatest act ever in terms of dignifying motherhood. If ever, ever, mothers were dignified, it was when Jesus saw his own mother while he was dying on the cross for the sins of the world. He pays tribute to her by seeing after her well-being. I hope everyone in here today takes time to dignify your mothers today. Because the love of a mother reflects the love of God. All God's children said. Amen. Amen. Time to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and once again see our Savior. Father, I pray you will help all of us to treasure being known and remembered by you. That we should forget you in our journey to life and new heavens and new earth will never outlive your love and grace for us. Because Jesus, on the cross, loved you with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loved us neighbors as himself, in our place, on our behalf. We now know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know the only thing you're not going to remember is our sins. For that we give you great thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns in you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now.